We continue this week uh, looking at the most ridiculously titled sermon series that I've ever given here at the beginning of year 15 at Rock Creek Fellowship. The title is Give Them Heaven. If I can make fun of myself, you can't make fun of me after. This is an homage to Dallas Willard, as you'll remember if you've been here. A word that he gave to his granddaughter, which I thought when I read it, epitomized so well, so much of what is the calling of each of you individually and all of us corporately, that we are the people who are the citizenship dwellers of heaven. We have a citizenship, says Paul, in heaven, and now we are the community where people are supposed to be able to get a taste of what happens when the life of the heavens comes down and moves into our neighborhood and starts a refurbishment process. The kind of, instead of diminishing of selves, the expansion of selves, and sort of the degrading, instead of the degrading of lives, the enhancement of lives. Instead of stinginess, generosity. Instead of meanness, warmth. Instead of protectiveness, self-giving. And today as we talk about giving them heaven, in a sermon I've called the vocation of splendor, as God reminded the Israelites that they were to be a light to the nations. This is part of their calling in the world. To say, you're the place the theater where God shows his best stuff. And whenever we leave here tomorrow, um, <laughs> tomorrow, get, get ready. I hope you brought your tents. <laughs> that wasn't a slip. That was, that was intended. I might go all day. Have you heard that loud love it song? I went to church. Okay. And I have no idea what I was saying. (laughs) What day is it? We're talking about Jesus, God, heaven, sin, cross. See, what's that? (laughs) Ha ha! Thank you. (laughs) When you leave here, you will be the carriers of this vocation to be the splendor of God, to give a taste of the heavens. To people where you work and where you play and where you shop and where you do life as a family. And so today we're going to talk about a very specific way that we give them heaven. And it all has to do with our speech. And it deals with what has become virtuous in our present milieu. The virtue of grumbling. No, that doesn't sound much like a virtue, is it? But I was reading recently in a New Yorker magazine where a man just said, you know what I thought I would do is I would record my conversations for a couple of days and just see how much time I actually spend grumbling, murmuring, complaining. He said, I was shocked to discover that it was 100%. And not only myself, but 100% of the conversations that I was around, nearly all of them contained some form of grumbling. 
It's as if grumbling has become virtuized in our present moment. And I would say, add to it the social megaphone of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and such. You can gripe, complain, criticize nearly anything, anytime. Anytime you have a thought of something that's offensive to you, troublesome to you, that's wrong about the world, that you would fix if you were getting to run things, if everybody had your same wisdom, you can shout it out. Jimmy Kimmel, if you've seen this, if you're under 30, I'm sure you have. If you're not, it's probably not. Has this segment called Mean Tweets. Celebrities read mean tweets. And most of them I can't even share here, but his whole point is to get real-life people, celebrities, who don't seem like real-life people, and have them read on the air actual tweets that people have written on their Twitter feed or however you describe it. And so you have these people who read these things, and it goes like this. Gwyneth Paltrow, you are a bleep, 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 bleep. I can't believe you were born. You're such a bleep, bleep, bleep. That's about how they go. It's very kind and affirming. You can't even, you don't even know what they're saying. There's so many bleeps. And if you've, if you've just come to America or to the planet Earth, the bleeps indicate that's a bad word that you can't say in polite company. President Obama, can someone please, says the mean tweet, take him to a distant island and leave him there. And they have President Obama read this on the air, this grumble sent out into the atmosphere. It's become a virtue. The apostle, right on the heels of reminding people whose citizenship is in heaven, the people called to give them heaven, he's just told us that our attitude, as Corby preached last week, should be like that of Christ Jesus. We should be people who take others into account. We consider them better than ourselves. We say we are not interested in equality with God. We don't think of that as something to be grasped, but we make ourselves the servant of the world like Jesus did. He says, therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence when I was with you obeying but now much more in my absence while I'm stuck here in jail continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure so he's setting them up and he's saying you know what you have been acted upon and it's a really good sign because here is what happens when the life of the heaven starts to get into you, when it starts working into you, then all of a sudden you find this very strange desire where you are actually willing and interested in starting to disobey yourself in order to obey God. Which is good because as we've said here before, by Jesus' own account, and I'm just flipping the words a little bit, to obey yourself is a dreadful domestic policy. There's so much about you and me that's all so wrong. We're not to be led along by our own noses. It doesn't matter what your strong impulses and desires are. If they're counter to what God wants, you're supposed to disobey them. And here's what happens, though. There are people in here right now, maybe even most of you, who have started because you've been acted on by the heavens. You've started to want the things that God wants. 
You find yourself, even if you can't carry it out, saying, you know what, I would really like to be someone who humbles myself. I would really like to be someone who considers others better than myself. I would really like to be someone who thinks about myself less. I would really like to be someone that Jesus could say, listen here, here's your assignment. I just want you to, this is it. This is your assignment. I want you to go home and be nice to your brother. I want you to go home and be nice to your sister. That's it. That's your only assignment. Your divine assignment. Just don't hit your sister in the nose. That's it. And you, and, and you might want to do it. But I want to hit her in the nose. She deserves to be hit in the nose, you might say. Everybody knows she needs to be hit in the nose. I'm envisioning, envisioning sibling situations here, small children. And yet, you say, but I want to do what Jesus wants. That, in and of itself, is a feat of the heavens. That people like us could start to say, you know what I want to do? I want to do what Jesus wants. And Paul says that's because God's at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He's, he's starting to hardwire you from the inside out. So he's worked in something that needs to work itself out. And now he tells us specifically how he wants that to be. Because he's writing to a church that's in some danger of having some complaining and some griping and some dissension. And in fact, he already knows, as chapter 4 would tell us, that there's some kind of fight between some cleverly named folks like Yodia and Syntyche. Kayla and Andrew, that was going to be your names, but we decided against it. Yodia and Syntyche, I plead with these women to, because it's a feminine name, that's the only reason we didn't name you that, to agree with each other in the Lord. That's what he says. So they're apparently in disagreement somehow. They're fighting against each other somehow. There's some kind of public conflict that he's caught word of through Epaphroditus who's brought, them, who's brought him kindnesses from the church. That's why he's writing this really joy-soaked thank you letter to him. He's in prison. They cared for him. He's heard a report. He's now reporting back. He hears that there's some conflict. We know conflict happens. Think about your own private life. When does conflict happen the most? One of the times it happens is when things start to go bad. If something's going badly inside of you, then you have a hard time not letting there sort of being a volcanic, volcanic eruption of all the gunk inside of you on everybody else. Or the external stress from the outside. You've got so much to do at work. There's financial pressure. Husbands and wives start bickering. Roommates start bickering. If a company life is not doing well, people start to fight. They start to assume the worst of each other. So it's way more fun to be on a winning team than on a non-winning team. But when stress comes, people start to grumble. They start to complain. Paul's telling them, it's been given to you to suffer. He's realizing that what may have, what's happened to him is probably going to happen to them. They're going to suffer. So they got this external pressure and they got this internal pressure. And so he says, here's a very specific way that you can obey God even when I'm not there and you can work out what he's worked into you. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Or as I think what Becky read, do everything without grumbling and complaining. No grumbling, no complaining, no murmuring. Do everything without those things. That is a very specific order a very specific assignment that will help us bring heaven 
to the earth, to give people a taste of the Jesus life. And so a diagnostic question for you. Who are you making much of these days? Who are you making much of these days? Or we could say, about whom are you making much? But that would be pretentious and you wouldn't understand what I'm saying. Who are you making much of these days? Because when we're told not to grumble or complain, if you're going to figure out why you're grumbling or complaining, in a way you've got to figure out what's going on when you do that. Now, if you can't figure it out, you can at least know not to do it, and you can just not. But it's hard. So it helps to look for a second and realize that when you grumble, when you complain, part of what you're doing is you're making the entire planet Earth very small. And you're saying, everybody around me and all the things that happen in the world should be happening differently in order to accommodate my wishes and desires. Wendell Berry said it like this in Jaber Crow. He speaks of a man who says he did not complain before he seemed to lack the instinct of making much of oneself which complaining requires. Let me say that again. And so if you're someone who takes notes, you can write it down. I don't see any power there. I see a pen. He's a college graduate, see? Cum laude graduate. She's taking notes. The rest of you bums are just sitting there. Just kidding. It's a joke. He did not complain, for he seemed to lack the instinct of making much of oneself, which complaining requires. See what he's saying? That's why you've got to ask yourself, why, who are you making much of these days? Let grumbling be your guide. If you want to discover who do you make much of in your life, Look and see, am I grumbling? Am I complaining? If you're grumbling and complaining, I can tell you who you're making much of. Yourself. And is it making you, is it changing the world like you hoped? Does grumbling bring about the best future that you were hoping it would? Isn't that working for you? I think it's just like planting poison ivy in your house. The more you grumble, the more poison ivy you're planting there. And you know what? Poison ivy is no respecter of persons. It gets on everybody, and it gets on you. And the more you grumble, the more the ivy grows in your life. You have to make much of yourself. Paul David Tripp and his elegant and rather distinguished and excessively large mustache said this. He said, have you ever seen him? He's got a mustache that is larger than this church. And he says, when you grumble, you are saying two things. You're saying, I deserve better, and I know better. The first has to do with this idea of making much of yourself. Whenever you start to notice that things are wrong, whenever you start to be frustrated, uh, what you're essentially doing is saying, I am royalty, and no one seems to realize it. Here I am, the president of my own kingdom, and I walk into my house, and no one is bowing, no one is doing all the service for me that I require, 
at my work. No one is ordering the market around my wishes and desires. On the team that I'm on, nobody seems to realize my innate greatness. When I'm driving down the road, these idiots who are enjoying the creation don't seem to realize that I did not factor them into my plans when I left late. I arranged just enough time to get there without any other humans on the road. And here they are, failing to appropriate my monarchy in the world. And it's funny because it's ridiculous. What's tragic about it is the ridiculousness becomes serious. And it becomes a time of hurt. If you start to reduce the world down to things that are all happening against you, everything is a calculated offense to you, then everything that happens since the world doesn't revolve around us, you've heard this, you've probably told your kids this, some mama probably told you this. Is something bad about to happen? I'm sorry. I get distracted easily if you can't tell. You and I are people who are prone, indigenous to our own hearts, to making much of ourselves. And if you stop to think, whenever I'm grumbling, whenever I'm complaining, whenever I'm pointing out what's wrong, what somebody didn't do, how somebody didn't come through for me, how someone didn't read my mind, how someone didn't think of me, anytime you do that and you're prone to grumble, if you could pause for a minute and say, wait a second, wait a second, here I am making much of myself. I'm acting like I'm royalty. But what did Jesus, who is royalty, do? And we're linked to him, you see. He, even though he was actually royalty, the son of God, he did not equate equality. He did not uh, attempt equality with God. He didn't think that was something that was to be reckoned with. Instead, he laid it aside. So here's what you should do. If you're somebody who finds yourself making much of yourself, your goal can be, hey, Jesus, will you... Work in me and then work out of me a desire to make much of you and to make much of other people and not so much of myself. And you know what he'll say? Okay. That's what he'll say. That sounds good. I like it that you're thinking this way, you see. That doesn't mean you're going to carry it out perfectly, but it's a good goal. It's a vision you can have for yourself. And when I wake up in the morning, when I'm grumbling, I'm wrong. When I'm grumbling, I'm seeing the world as if it belongs to me and as if God had created all of it in order that it might meet my needs, my needs for esteem, my needs for provision, my needs for accolade, my needs to be considered. That's the only reason it exists. Well, there might be other reasons. There might be. You have to find out. If you find yourself being a Grumbletonian, which is a good word. That's what this author of the New Yorker called it, Grumbletonians. You can realize, okay, I'm actually, I'm growing a harvest of poison ivy in my own house. I'm really allergic to poison ivy. That's why I'm thinking it. When the summer gets here, I just kind of freeze up. Because I just don't want, and we live in the woods, which is really helpful because poison ivy grows there. And the dog walks through it. And you're like, I don't want to touch this dog. It's going to give me poison ivy. So I'm thinking about growing poison ivy. That's what you're doing with your grumbling. And you say, Lord, I want to think about you. I want to make much of you and not make much of myself. I want to make much of others, treat them like they're royalty instead of demanding that they treat me like I am. 
Because, see, we're always urged to think of other people as these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are royal creatures. We're never urged to think of ourselves first and foremost. So here's the way you can practice this. Besides thinking of who am I making most of? And letting grumbling be your God to see who you're making most of. The other thing is this, is you can start when grumbling comes to your lips, when it comes to your mind, you can realize this. I'm telling you this. It's free advice. You can suffocate it. There's a lot of grumbling, a lot of complaining, a lot of murmuring, a lot of critique, a lot of standing at a distance and looking down on everything, poking holes in it, reading people's emotions, figuring out why they're doing what they're really why they're doing what they're doing, reading their emotions, reading their minds, assuming everything that we do that we feel compelled to say something about. The Bible has this crazy idea that if you can learn to control your tongue, your whole body will follow. That it's like a little rudder on a great ship. That you can actually control the direction of your life by making sure that your pie hole stays shut. That's what the Greek says. says, shut your dang pie hole. Okay, it doesn't really say that. But it could say that. I could see the Apostle Paul getting a little agitated after a few beers saying, shut your pie hole. But you see, when you shut your pie hole, what you do is you suffocate the grumble. You don't give it an oxygen. It can't grow. It can't be a little tiny fire that becomes a bonfire. This doesn't mean you shouldn't process things with people. This doesn't mean you shouldn't complain to other people sometimes for the, for the benefit of working through something. But some of you, if you look at your life, you're like what this author of the New Yorker said, that's all you do. Is you just walk around in an excessive complaint. Every room you walk in, there's something wrong there. Great. Why don't you not tell us about that? And realize, as Dan Allender has said, the difference between, as we've talked in the past, between like lament and grumbling. The psalmist is very honest to God and very negative to God. He's not Pollyanna-ish. But when you're grumbling, what you've done is you've already made a conclusion and you've already said, I'm not being treated like I deserve and God's not governing the universe in the right way. And you're making accusations. You're not interested in change. You're interested in spewing your stuff. You're an active volcano. We talked to a girl here here at Rock Creek for a while who's now living in Hawaii. And she described living near this island where there's an active volcano and when it releases its volcanic ash. She says they call it VOG. V-O-G. Like fog with a V for volcanic. And it's, it's this atmospheric smog that everybody breathes in. She says, I'm allergic to it. And it seems to me that that's a good metaphor for us. We're active volcanoes and something is always being emitted from us. And if you're grumbling and complaining, you're letting, you're letting the decaying old man in you, the old woman, the dying part, the part that's being to be put to death, you're letting that stink come out into the world. And it chokes people, and it hurts people, and it doesn't make them thrive. 
I know a little boy who's really funny. And he has taken to doing this, and I've thought, you're going to get killed one day. But it's so funny. But it's also he's going to get killed. And what this little boy will sometimes do, this nameless little boy who lives in a certain town far away. You don't know where he lives. This little boy, though, will sometimes, when he's walking outside, and there are people who are smoking or, you know, vaping, I don't know, They're smoking outside. This little boy will make sure he gets close enough to be heard, and then he will proceed to go. (laughs) And then in a very hyperbolic, exaggeratory way, will make sure that the displeasure that these people are creating for the, 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 the community members around them, he'll make sure that that is thrown back into their face. And then he might even add a comment like, Don't you hate it when people smoke? (laughs) And when I've seen this little boy do this, I don't remember his name, I have thought, that is hilarious and you're going to get killed. (laughs) But it is funny. And I feel the same way because I can't handle cigarette smoke. I can't handle strong perfumes. Sorry. It clogs me up. And we have an opportunity to emit something that's either rather fragrant and life-giving or a kind of smog that makes people not able to breathe. And see, grumbling and complaining and arguing, what Paul says, don't do this. These are anti-community affairs. These are ways of being opposed to people. No community can flourish. No household can flourish if you are someone who is intent on making sure that everybody in that house bends the knee to you. You've got to bend your knee to them. I remember when we were newly married, Kathy and I, we had, we had like three fights in our whole marriage, and they were all when we first were married. Okay, some of you are laughing because you realize that was a joke. We've had six. And I used to be this quite a literalist in terms of thinking, When Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, do not give the devil a foothold, we used to, to, it seems like, stay up sometimes. We'd be in the middle of a a polite uh, impasse, and we would be talking about this. She's smiling so far, this is good. And I can remember times, and I don't know, I haven't talked to her about this, I can remember times we'd get to be 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. We have work the next day or school or something. And, and you would, I would not even remember what we were talking about. But I would still be engaging in the argument. Because I was, I was committed to, our being, to my being right. I mean reconciled. <laughs> because you see, that's what happens sometimes. If you're constantly grumbling and you need things to go your way, you need the governance of the universe to be on you, then even when you engage with others to be reconciled, you'll really just be concerned with being right. And the thing will just go on and on, and you won't even have the sense to say, you know what, I'm pretty sure we can't be reconciled because I don't even know if we're speaking English anymore. It's so tired in here, I can't think. We should probably just go to bed. But when you want to be right, boy, that is a... That's a jolt of five-hour energy. It'll keep you going. Your wounds, your desire to be vindicated, to be right, that can energize you for a long time. 
But boy, it lets off a smoke that makes people cough. It chokes out relationships. If you're around anybody who grumbles a lot, aren't you eager to go places with them? Isn't it fun to be around somebody who always has something wrong with them? Or is always able to detect with their sterling perception everything that's wrong in the universe? It's a burden that they bear. For being so wise and smart to be able to know everything that's wrong and how everything should actually be. The apostle says, don't do it. Do everything without complaining or grumbling. There are some things you don't need to let come out. They'll suffocate. You think you'll suffocate if you don't say them. It won't happen. Practice it. Practice just saying, I want to complain about this, but I'm just going to not. Because when you start grumbling, all you're doing is practicing the presence of it. You're just rehearsing what you're upset about. You're rehearsing what's wrong. I can't believe we have to live in this house. I can't believe we have to drive this car. I can't believe I have to work at this place. I can't believe how these kids are reacting. I can't believe how she treats me. I can't believe how insensitive he is. I can't believe how my boss will not take into account my, I've got a family. (sighs) Okay. Remember, the Apostle Paul says, shut your pie hole. Do you know he doesn't say that? Okay. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Ask yourself, who am I making much of these days? Am I secretly saying I deserve better and I know better how to run the universe? You know how the story of Job ends after Job has been griping, and rightly so. The governance of the universe has not gone in his favor in a very good way at all. I wouldn't want to be in his spot. And he finally gets an audience with God. And God says, you know, come here, sweetie. Come here and sit. No, he says, brace yourself like a man. He's just entered boot camp in the Marine Corps. Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you and you'll answer me. And then he goes off on this sarcastic litany. Listen here, smarty pants, you who know how to do everything. Have you ever told the morning to get up? Excuse me, son, time to wake up, S-U-N. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Have you ever not only envisioned, created, and spoken into being an ocean, but also told the water molecules when they started encroaching on the land, stop right there, you can't go any further. Have you ever been to the secret divine storage unit where God keeps all the lightning bolts? And when he wants them and they come to him, have you ever had a lightning bolt say, here we are reporting for duty, sir? God starts to let him have it. Saying, there's so many things you don't understand, but that I do. See, we're people that God has decided to engraft into his replenishment and refurbishment of the world. He has offered and spent himself so that we could be one. And Paul wants us to shine like stars in the universe. And he says, if we don't grumble and complain, we will become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which we shine like stars in the universe. 
You can't complain that you know better how to run the universe. You don't. Especially when our God is so good at it that he can take apparent defeat and make it the world's healing and the resurrection and the crucifixion of Jesus. If you want a good pickup line, you can use this one one time. This is how I got Kathy to like me, age 14. Can you tell him about the tell a lie? Girl, honey, was your, your daddy must have been a thief. He stole them stars and put them in your eyes. You can use that. Write that down. Your daddy must have been a thief because he stole them stars and he put them in your eyes. Kathy was putty in my hands when I said that. I don't think I've ever said that with sincerity to her, but it's true. Her daddy must have been a thief. The apostles envision this situation where we are the people that God plucks out some of the illumination of the heavens and he's put in us. And if we choke that out by grumbling, then the earth is not going to get to see the splendor of God coming through sometimes ratty people like us. But if we choke out the grumbling and we say, God, let the splendor of the stars, let the, the wonder of the heavens come emanating through us, let that be a fragrant offering that we have to the world because we know we are governed well and that we, we've gotten way better than we deserve. So we don't have to complain. And we don't have to argue and we don't have to be right because we have someone to entrust ourselves to and we offer that to the world. Who are you making much of these days? You'll have an opportunity as soon as you leave church. At least for every individual here, at least 22 things will happen before 4 o'clock today that will give you an occasion to grumble or to suffocate the grumble, to question God's governance of your life, and to say, I deserve better than this, or to say, our God withholds nothing from us and has entrusted us with a vocation of splendor where we are not to let off from this volcano of ourselves a smog that chokes, but a fragrance that people can breathe in and get to know our God. I charge you to carry with you this vocation of splendor by refusing to grumble and complain. Amen.